0: Welcome to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, the true crime podcast that features the good apples and the bad apples within the school system. My name is Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So join me as I present school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable and outright bizarre. Hello, everyone. Great to have your company today. This is episode nine of the Apple for the Teacher podcast. My name is Anna Thomas. Well, since the last episode, I now have listeners from Sweden. So hello and welcome to you. When I think of Sweden, I think about that crazy story about the Ericsson twins, the ones who deliberately ran out onto a busy highway and they were run over, but they managed to somehow survive. It's one of my all-time favorite stories the type of story that is so unique and will never be repeated. If you have listened to other episodes, thank you so much. If it's your first time, welcome. I'm going to tell two stories related to the school system. One is a bad apple and the other is a good apple. The podcast presents events which have occurred in schools. I'm a teacher myself and since I started researching for the podcast, it has shocked me the stories that I have come across. So far, we've seen a teacher being murdered by a student, a school bus hijack, a school kidnap, bullying, a school shooting, lawsuits against schools and teachers, and teacher misconduct. However, it's not all doom and gloom. The good Apple stories will be positive and show the wonderful things happening within schools. The bad Apple story will come first, just like the saying, Do you want the good news or the bad news first? Most people want the bad news first, so the good apple story will be the second story so that we can end on a positive note. So let's preview the stories today. Story one is the bad apple and is called Too Little Too Late. Ron was a teacher who had an accusation made against him. What was it? Story two is the good apple and is called Not Guilty an early education teacher was doing his dream job. So why did he quit? So let's get into the first story. Firstly, I need to provide a warning about this episode. It revolves around suicide and therefore listener discretion is advised. This story is about a teacher named Ron Mayfield. Ron had always wanted to be a teacher but after graduating from college, there were few teaching jobs to be had. Instead, he went into railroad work, following his father and grandfather. After 20 years working on the railroads, he took advantage of an early retirement offer and returned to college, determined to make his second career as a teacher. After taking various teaching positions, he finally settled in Virginia, USA, taking a job teaching English to foreign students in the Roanoke Public Schools. The year was 2004. Ron came home from work, but his wife sensed that something was not quite right about her husband. He said, I don't know how to tell you this, but they have put me on administrative leave. This kid accused me of hitting him. He told her that the accusation that caused his suspension was the vengeance of an angry teenager. He went on to explain what had happened. He said he had touched a disruptive 13-year-old boy on the chest a week earlier, telling the boy that he needed to behave and pay attention. When the boy acted up again that morning, he ordered him from the classroom. The boy responded by complaining to the principal that Ron had assaulted him the week earlier. The boy, who was the son of immigrants from India, had polio as a toddler and used a wheelchair. Ron had been warned about the boy in the wheelchair at the start of the school year. A teacher who had the boy in her class the year before told him how he had disrupted her class many times. Ten days after the accusation, Ron said to his wife, I'm not supposed to be here today. I thought about committing suicide today. And then he handed her a three-page suicide letter. The letter said, Hi honey, I'm writing this to come clean with everybody. I cannot have my face on television and in the newspaper over this incident. An incident where I was attempting to teach Abdul a lesson and wake him up. I am so tired and so nervous, almost paranoid, that the police are going to be knocking on our door at any moment to arrest me. His wife cried, saying that they needed to tell his parents. He hadn't told his parents anything about what had happened, and when he finally did, they were shocked. They asked why he felt the allegation was such a big deal. He replied by saying the news of what happened would bring shame to his family and he didn't want to cause them pain. His father replied, Ronnie, if you really think that this is going to hurt us, if you commit suicide, That is going to hurt us a lot worse. They talked some more and a while later Ron told them that he had changed his mind and that he was not going to kill himself. His parents made him promise that he wouldn't do anything. He added that if people found out he wanted to kill himself then it would make him look guilty. They all agreed never to speak about it again. While the school and police investigated the case for more than two weeks Ron became convinced that when the facts of the case were made public, he would look guilty. Initially, he had not admitted to touching the boy, and now he became worried that he would be portrayed as a monster. On October 15th, 14 days after the allegation, Ron told his wife he had to visit a friend. I won't be long, he said, kissing his wife. I love you. He drove to a bridge over the Roanoke River. It had held a special place in his life growing up and he had used a photo of the river as his computer screensaver. It was where he had fished as a boy. He made a phone call to his wife at 8am but did not tell her where he had gone. He then jumped from the bridge to his death. His wife had tried to call him again but his cell phone lay abandoned and rang and rang again without answer his body was found later that day it was discovered that he had called 911 but didn't say a word he left a note tucked in a bible on the front seat of his car which was parked in the rest area by the bridge the note read i am so sorry for what i have done but there is no way i could carry on absolutely no way the day before ron took his life School officials were notified by the investigators that the case would be closed because there was no evidence to prove the allegations against Ron. Tragically, Ron had not been informed that he had been cleared of any wrongdoing. One day, just one day stood between a man living and dying. Ron also wasn't aware that the boy's parents wanted to drop the case against him. The family were from India, where teachers hit students all the time, and they didn't care if Mr Mayfield hit the boy or not, because he probably deserved it. The parents wanted to make their son apologise to the teacher and for the matter to be dropped, but no one from the school had notified them about what had happened until it was too late. A student at his funeral said this about Ron. He taught us how to be courteous and polite like he was. I would never forget what he taught us. Thanks for being a great teacher, Mr. Mayfield. And his mother said, He loved teaching. He told me he was going to teach forever. Ron's family believed his death could have been avoided had he known the status of the investigation. Following the suicide, the school district fine-tuned its policy on investigations of alleged employee misconduct. The district formed a committee to examine the district's existing policies. We had never had a situation like this, a representative said. The death of Mr Mayfield brought it more to the forefront. The committee, which was made up of teachers, administrators, parents and other district employees, recommended that employees who are placed on administrative leave be given an update on the investigation every three to five days. The school board approved the policy. Parents of the involved student would also be kept aware of any developments or decisions by the police department or the city's Child Protective Services Agency. The school board also adopted a policy stating that, students shall not willfully or maliciously make false accusations or reports against school personnel or other students. School administrators would determine the consequences. When a teacher is falsely accused, districts need to have strong policies that there will be severe repercussions for the student. We don't want to be aggressive or hurt the student, but trifling with someone's reputation is something that should not be taken lightly. So that's the end of the story and it's just so tragic. I just can't believe that it was only a single day that stood between Ron's life and his ultimate death. And let me just give you this stat that I found on allegations against teachers. A study in Great Britain found that 1,782 allegations of abuse by teachers resulted in only 96 prosecutions. So this could mean a very large number were false allegations. Clearly, some of the abuse may have occurred, but there just wasn't enough evidence. But still, that's only a small percentage that were prosecuted. What happened to Ron can so easily happen to female teachers as well, something which I am not complacent about. I really never gave it a thought at the start of my career but now you really need to be aware of what could happen if you are alone with a student. It's perhaps something that a high school teacher should have more concern about than a primary school teacher such as myself, as students these days know all too well the consequences of an abuse complaint and they know how to game the system. They know how to get an unpopular teacher fired by making false allegations and unfortunately, some of them tried to do just that. I remember years ago, I would give a student detention during playtime and it would just be me and them in the classroom. But I just won't do that anymore unless there are more than two students present. So this was a very hard story to tell. But if it has affected you, please seek help. Now, let's have a break before story two. This next story is a teacher's personal account of his school experience. I'd like to be able to tell you his name, but he has chosen to have his identity withheld. He tells his story in his own words. This account was taken from the web link at www.stuff.co.nz. My day started like any other. I got up early and had breakfast. My girlfriend, who is now my wife drove me to work. It was a beautiful sunny day at the daycare centre where I worked and the children were running around outside burning off energy after weeks of terrible weather. Sunny days in winter are an early childhood educator's holy grail. I'd been working at the centre for six months while I waited for the next intake to study early childhood. A centre is permitted to have a ratio Of untrained and trained staff, and I'd been hired on the condition that I would become qualified and remain at the centre after I'd finished my studies. Everything was extremely normal. I set up morning tea and supervised the children as they played. The morning went quickly, and before I knew it, it was lunchtime. My girlfriend asked me to meet up for lunch, which we did. She had been a little unwell the past week. We ate in the car and she gave me a few items wrapped up like a present. Baby booties and other baby items. She was pregnant. I looked at the pink line and even though we had only known each other for a few months, it felt right. After a bit of talking and hugging, I kissed her goodbye and went back to work with a pretty big grin on my face. The afternoon was a mixture of nappy changes and wiping snotty noses. My employer had suggested I do all the same tasks as the female staff so everyone knew we did the same work and we were of equal value. So I did. I wanted to show that, like women, men weren't to be stereotyped. I was conscious of how important positive male role models are in the lives of children and wanted to make a real difference. I was sitting on the floor with a few children singing when my boss asked me to come into her office. I thought she may have wanted to talk to me about my studies, as I'd recently been accepted to study early childhood. As I entered the room, her expression was one of dread. She told me to sit down. The parents of a child had made a complaint against me. At the time, I wasn't allowed to know any of the details of the allegations, only that they were of a sexual nature. My heart sank. I had never felt anything like this. I could hardly talk. I couldn't breathe. It came as a horrendous shock to me. As a male teacher, I had known it was a possibility, and I had heard how cases against men had led to witch hunts and false accusations, even false imprisonment. But this was the 2000s, and we were living in a new era of gender equality. I had dismissed the risk as low and pushed it to the back of my mind. But the worst was yet to come. I had recently moved into my partner's house, but because she looked after children at her house as a job, I had to move out, pending the police investigation. Thankfully, my parents had room. At this point, I had no idea what the allegations were and thoughts were spinning around in my head about how this could have happened. My boss had done everything possible to make it a safe place for men to work there. How could it have gone so wrong? Every day, I would call my girlfriend. Finding out you're having a baby just three months into a relationship is hard, but we were being tested far beyond that. We talked about my visit to the lawyer. He told me, matter of factly, that cases like this can get out of hand very easily and that I should prepare myself to go to court. My partner and I talked about the what ifs. What if it went to court? What would we do? What about our baby? We talked about coping under this amount of stress. My girlfriend mentioned abortion. I understood why, but I still hit rock bottom. Finally, it was time to be questioned by police and I was told the exact nature of the allegations. The parents of a young boy believed their son, who had begun to touch himself when his nappy was being changed, had been taught the behaviour by someone else. They questioned the child with leading questions to get him to single out two teachers, myself and a female teacher, but only I was suspended and questioned by police. Knowing what I was up against, I was less worried, but I wasn't going to count my chickens. After about an hour of questioning, police came to the conclusion that there was no evidence to support the claims made by the child's parents. After this ordeal was over, I tried to go back to work, but after a month I couldn't do it. Every time I looked at a parent, I would break out in a cold sweat that would lead to a panic attack as I hid in the toilets, sobbing to myself. I decided to call it quits. My heart was broken and it was never going to heal in that environment. The hardest part was saying goodbye to all my friends, both staff and children, but I just couldn't do it anymore. Today, things are slowly getting better. I have post-traumatic stress disorder and still have the occasional panic attack, especially when other people's children say hello or try to talk to me. I even get them when dropping off and picking up my own kids from daycare or when taking them to singing and play groups, My innocence has been stripped away and I doubt it will ever truly come back. That day, everyone did exactly what they should have been doing. A child was being a child and doing child things. Parents were concerned and did something about it. And I was doing my job, a job I can no longer do. This remains an extremely sensitive topic to talk about and at the time I was advised by the police and my lawyer that simply talking about it would be enough to create more hysteria and damage. The whole ordeal had to be shrouded in silence, as it is often deemed too unsafe for men to openly talk about such experiences. This happens more often than anyone would care to know. False allegations are often swallowed up in the sea of claims that fail to get an arrest. It is often stated that men choose not to go into early childhood education because it is perceived as women's work. Yes, this can be one reason, but to assume that it is the only deciding factor is disingenuous and dangerously naive. We are a long way from creating a safe and fair workplace for men who work around children. Society is constantly branding all men by the actions of the few who do wrong. That kind of attitude comes at a cost and is hurting your grandfathers, your fathers, your brothers, and most of all, your sons. And that's the end of his story. Over the many years that I've been teaching, I have seen myself the gradual decline in male teachers. In recent years, We have had a number of male teachers retiring, leaving my school with only two male teachers out of about 30. So it seems that young men are not choosing teaching and retiring male teachers are just not being replenished. My old school photos showed a large number of male teachers in years gone past. So if you're a teacher, I would love to know if you have also seen this trend yourself. So, that brings us to the end of the episode. I'd now like to give you a preview of episode 10. There will be three stories. Story 1 is called Bloodbath. Something was buried in a sandbath. What was it? Story 2 is called Dead and Buried. What did the excavator dig up on the school track? Story 3 is called Six Feet Under. Vasu stole a packet of biscuits. Was his punishment justified? I would love for you to join me on our Facebook group and also Instagram, where you will be able to find more information, photos and videos of the stories. So, to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. Teaching kids to count is fine, but teaching them what counts is best. Bye for now. And remember to be a good apple.